Power Users, Episode 112, Self-Publishing. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Hey, David. Hey, Katie. And this is an episode we didn't know that we were going to do. You put out the call, and boy, did you get an answer, huh? Yeah. So this is the episode about self-publishing. I've got a little bit of experience with it. and um, A little. Yeah. So I've put out a couple books that way. I did a couple books with a big publisher, and then I did a couple books myself. And I didn't think anybody would care. Yeah, it seems like a very inside baseball kind of show. But then emails I guess our whole, and emails and emails came pouring in. Well, you know, not that many, but uh, there was a lot of people that that wanted this information. I, I, you know, the more I think about it, our whole show is inside baseball. So why not this too? All right, that's it. Yeah. So so I um I guess we should start by talking a little bit about my journey. Right. I remember I, a long time ago when this journey started. Yeah, you've been kind of my pal throughout this stuff. You're my confidant. So I, uh, and I, you know, some of this stuff has already been covered on the show. We we did shows on like Mac at Work, the first book I wrote. I talked about my experience with publishing industry where I basically kind of blundered my way in. And despite my best efforts, they still gave me a contract and I wrote a book. And and I guess the first thing I would say at the show is I have no gripe with big publishers and the people that I dealt with that Wiley were really nice to me and uh, I had a lot of help and I think I wouldn't have been able to do all the self-publishing without at least some of the guidance I got from them over the time. But either way, you know, I, I did, I dealt with big publishers and uh, at some point along the journey after the second book, which was iPad at work, I started to really think about self-publishing. Now give, give us some perspective on this. When did this all start? 2009 ish? I've kind of lost track, to be honest okay. with you. But, um, but, it took like eight year to make the deal for Mac at work. It went, you know, they wanted it, then they didn't want it, then they, you know, it was like, it was, uh, it, it, it was a wizard communication, you know, where there's somebody that makes answers who I don't really know who that is, and you know, it's just like everybody who deals with us technology nerds and doesn't understand the te- underlying technology, but they wait for answers. That's what I felt like as part of that whole process. But at some point or another, they they did agree uh, to uh, support me in writing a book called Mac at Work, and I thought it was a really good book. It you know put a lot of time and effort into it, and it was well received. And um, so that came out. I want to say the end of two thousand ten. Sounds that about that right. Book published, and then is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think that's right. Anyway, um. So then, or actually it came out early 2011 because it got delayed because of the Christmas rush, because apparently they couldn't print my book. It was done, but they couldn't print it because they were busy printing uh, Christmas and holiday books, you know, the But I think the it actual, was out in time for like Macworld 2011, right? Yeah, well, yeah. that was January. So yeah. that was the January of the following year. So, so it got held up a little bit. And then, so then the book came out and it did really great. And and we were talking about iPad at work from the beginning. I always thought that was really the real interesting book because the iPad was new and people really didn't know what to do with it. And I had this, you know, religious mission that I wanted to prove that you could work with an iPad, which is an interesting dispute because it's still going on. You know, <laughs> even even more so now with the iPad mini, we're having that yeah. debate all over again. Yeah. 
So that book I wrote uh, with my publisher over the course of 2011. And because I'd already done it once, it was a lot easier the second time. And, and they had already trained me, you know, in terms of how do you format documents and, you know, what are the Microsoft Word templates you use when you submit the chapters and, you know, all of this stuff. There's a whole bunch of, of just overhead that goes with writing a book in a big publishing system, which that's the way it has to be because they've got all these people and they've got, you know, everything is kind of built around this machine and you've got to put the right inputs in to get the right outputs. And, uh, and that's great. And that's how they make their money. Uh, but I just wasn't really happy with it. I felt like it was affecting the quality of the product. And part of the problem I had was just my feelings about in general, the future of the publishing industry in terms of, you know, where we are now. I mean, for a long time, if you wanted to write a book, you had to get a publisher to say yes, because those big machines and the paper and the distribution method and everything required cooperation from a lot of pieces that a simple public uh, writer could never control or have access to. So once again, you needed the wizard to get you through the system. But it was very clear to me, you know, even when I started the first book that those things are changing, you know, and that's something that we've talked about on this show in relation to just about every media. Every time it comes up, if we talk about music or iTunes, we talk about how we think the world is changing and we've talked about it in relation to movies and, and absolutely it's changing with respect to books because now, you know, the things big publishers bring to you, the manufacturer of the book isn't necessarily as big of a deal as everybody's more reliant on electronic books. Uh, the distribution is not as big of a deal as such as things like Amazon and the iBookstore arrive that give you uh, a simple mean of distribution of your electronic books. And even the marketing side, because we have this great thing called the internet and we get to know people and people get to know us and you don't need a big publishing house behind you to, to market the book. But either way, I, I had done those two books and I wanted to see about self-publishing. So that gets me to... Uh, really, you know, late 2011, as I'm wrapping up iPad at work and thinking about what I want to do next. Now, can if I can back up and ask, in in 2009, to early 2010, when you were doing some of the back and forth with, with Mac at work and didn't know whether it was going to go or whether it wasn't going to go, you know, I understand the process with iPad at work was a, was a little smoother. Is sh- you, I know you saw, and because we talked about the self-publishing was in the horizon, and it, uh, it wasn't as easy as it was now. Um, but did you ever consider just, no, oh, forget this, I'm going that route? Yeah, no, it, it was planned. I mean, because at one point I was told in the Mac at work painful birth process, I was told, no, no, we don't want your book. It's, you know, it's not going to happen. And I, I reached out to a couple literary agents in the technology writing stuff, uh, writing field, I guess. Would that be a better word? So sure. I, I reached out to a couple people kind of in the know and explained to them what I had done and what I was thinking about. And everyone was universal in their idea that that's about the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. Nobody's going to buy a book about how to get work done on their Mac. Every you know, I mean, it really, all the old prejudices were still there, you know, and and people just thought that was just a ridiculous idea. So I was pretty sure nobody would ever publish it. So I had started working on the book as a self-published thing. And I was just going to self-publish like a lot of people do and, and never go through the big publishing house. 
But then at some point, my the original publisher came back and decided that I wasn't a complete idiot, and they thought they'd give it a shot. And so they, you know, they basically made a contract with me to write the book under their name or under their publisher, publishing house. And I did that. So had that not happened, which really was kind of a last minute thing, I was absolutely planning to write and publish this book. I had to get it out of my system. I really wanted to share this message. So in fact, you and I had talked about this because I was looking at the various platforms to publish back in 2009. Uh, and Fortunately, I didn't have to. I was able to do it through, you know, traditional publishing. But having gone through it, there was a lot of stuff I liked about having a big publisher behind me and a lot of stuff I didn't like about it. Um, and I guess one of the things is I always felt like, you know, when you're part of a, a big company and their system, there are certain things you can do and you can't do, you know. And, and it's just a function of my, as I get older, it's much harder for me to submit to people. You know, they, I because I have a very distinct writing style, and I I, will, I don't want to say that you know it's better or worse than anybody, but it's just it's just my voice is different. Sure. If you read my blog, you know it, and uh, I kind of revel in it. I enjoy writing unrestrained for Max Sparky because I write legal briefs during the day, and you know there's so many rules about that, as you know. Uh, so it's really fun writing the Max Sparky stuff. But I, I found out very quickly as I went through the big publisher. That, you know, some of the things, the voice I like to use, they weren't so cool with that. You know, they didn't want, they wanted it to be toned down a bit. And and to their credit, they didn't like silence me. They didn't like squash it out. But uh, I always was getting a little bit of feedback saying, ah, can you please tone that down a bit? And maybe that would made the books better. I don't know. But that always kind of bugged me a little bit. Um, the other hang up I had with the traditional book model was the technology in terms of trying to get this type of information across with just words and screenshots is a poor medium. It just doesn't work that well. And that's no fault of the big publisher, whether I had self published the book or done it through them, I would have faced those same challenges. But uh, by the end of the second book, I was really convinced that I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to find a way that I could teach people better. And the hallelujah moment for that was when I was helping a friend set up a secure disk image and uh, she came over and says, you got to help me. I need to make a secure disk image. And I knew she had read my books. You know, this is a close friend and I'd given her copies and she was into this stuff. So she read it. And I said, well, you know, I told you how to do it at the end of Mac at work. There's a whole chapter in security. And I did a, like, I got like almost special permission to put extra screenshots because I knew it was complicated. And she says, yeah, I read that. I just could not figure it out. You, need, you just need to show me. And I got thinking, okay, that's the problem, you know, just words and screenshots aren't enough to show somebody how to do something complex in their computer. And I want my next book to be better like that. I don't want that to have that problem. And so that really leads to kind of the third concern I had or reason why I wanted to self-publish was control. I wanted more control over what I could do. I wanted to go crazy with screenshots. I wanted to find a way to distribute video with the book. And at this time there was no iBooks author application, um, you know, there are, there was some budding ideas about uh, evolving EPUB and there were some ideas about embedding video into PDF. I wasn't sure exactly how this new book was going to be written. Uh, you know, I, at one point I thought, well, maybe I'll have a bunch of Vimeo videos that go up that are just linked in the book so you can jump to the web and watch Vimeo from it. You know, so I had all these ideas, but I knew that I wanted it better. I didn't want somebody to read the book and not be able to do what I told them. 
Yeah, because this whole idea is very foreign. For more than 50 years, any manual or tutorial or book that we've been reading based on computer or technology has, has always been just text. And then maybe if you're lucky, text or screenshots. And then we evolved maybe a little bit where you'd get these CDs that they'd stick in the back of a book that that might have lessons or some, or, or, or interactive components that, I mean, really who pops out the CD and, and does those things. Yeah. It's really it, a foreign concept. Yeah. Until and, now. And yeah. So then, and then the next issue that I had was uh, in the case for self-publishing was control. I mean, I wanted to own the content and, you know, my big contract and, you know, I'm Mr. Lawyer, right? I'm supposed to negotiate the best contract in the world. But the fact is here I am, this little guy unpublished, and, you know, the contract they gave me, you know, gives them a lot of rights. And we did have back and forth and they were, they did listen to my concerns and we did make changes to it. But at the end of the day, it just really kind of bugged me that, you know, I had to go to them to ask permission to do things, to get, you know, get a forward written or do stuff like that. You know, I, I just didn't like it. And once again, I think that's a function of my age because I notice as I get older, I'm so, it's so much harder for me to just like, have somebody tell me what to do. I think, I don't know if it's my ego or if I'm just turning into a jerk or what, but I didn't like that. And I wanted more control over the whole process. And then the last piece of it really is money because, you know, when you do it through a big publishing house, they get a big portion of it. And in my case, a really big portion. (laughs) So, you know, you're doing all this work and you're like, well, I want, I want to get more of the, uh, the income off of this as well. If you're going to put this much time in, because writing a book is really, really hard. I I can't under understate that. I mean, not just the process of writing the words down, but getting up the energy to do it and keeping at it. And when you've got kids and family and other commitments, you're sacrificing other things. And, you know, I wanted it to be something where I had more control out of that. So I had a lot of reasons to be interested in self-publishing. And as iPad at work started wrapping up, I started looking very serious at the options available to me. And, um, and, and they, the iBooks author wasn't one of those options at that time, right? No, no, it wasn't. It was, I mean, that was, and that's part, another part of the story. Do you want to do a uh, sponsor before we uh, continue on this? Yeah. Yeah. We've been, we've been going a while. So why don't we take a minute and talk about our first sponsor for this episode? And that's going to be one password. And, you know, I've been preaching the virtues of one password forever and I had kind of a, a, a freaky moment. I was, I was, you know, doing something very exciting. I was ordering pants online because, you know, that's that's how I roll. But because I order everything online, God forbid I should hey, actually go out to a mall. Uh, if you get to order smaller pants, it is quite exciting. <laughs> okay, there you go. But uh, so I was, I was on a website, and um, I had this shocking moment of why are the last four digits of my credit card number in this website? You know, obviously I had, I had put them in this website that I had ordered credit card that I'd ordered from before and inadvertently checked little checkbox that said, or, or I probably more likely not unchecked the checkbox that said, you know, save this credit card for, for future use. So one of the things that I am making a point of doing, it's one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to tighten up my security is I'm making a point of going back through and Every time I order something online, I'm checking and making sure that my credit card information and all of that stuff is not saved in the vendor's website. And I started thinking, why in the world would I or would anybody else ever, ever, ever save this type of information on a vendor's website? That's just asking for trouble because you don't have any control over where this stuff is going. 
And it's because it's a pain to pull out your credit card, pull out your wallet, go digging and go find that stuff every time you want to go shopping online. But you know, there's a solution to that. Yes, I do. <laughs> and that's 1Password. And 1Password we've talked about will will create unique, strong, secure passwords for all of your various websites, but it will also store all of this information that's in your wallet. And that includes um, uh, credit card information. It will autofill all of that for you with the click of a button, just as easy it is to fill passwords. So don't worry. It's just as easy to buy everything you want to buy online, maybe even easier and a whole lot secure, be- more secure because you don't have to worry about all your password information being saved on somebody else's website. In fact, just go through your wallet one weekend and look at all of the stuff that you've got. Maybe you've got voter registration cards. Maybe you've got um, insurance information. Maybe you've got traveler rewards cards. All of this stuff, you can stick all of that information in one one password. They've got a, a little wallet feature within one password. And the next time you need it, or maybe maybe you can even lighten your wallet a little bit by getting rid of some of that stuff that you don't need in your wallet because you don't use it very often. And when you do, you just need the number for it. Lighten your wallet up a little bit. And because all that information is safely and securely stored in one password, and don't trust it to somebody else. Yeah, and you can put not just your credit card number, but you can put the emergency phone number. So if it gets lost or something, you can go open one password on your iPhone or your iPad and start calling the people up to let them know there's been trouble. Absolutely, because they're not going to be able to steal your 1Password data because even if they steal your phone or even if they steal your computer, your 1Password data is going to be secure and it's going to be accessible from all of your other devices because it's synced up with Dropbox. So no matter where you are, you're going to have access to it. So you can pick up 1Password. My favorite place to get it is in the Mac App Store. That's available for $49.99. And they've announced... We've started to see little sneak previews of 1Password 4. So if you pick up 1Password in the Mavic App Store, it's a free upgrade to version 4 when it comes out. If you, it looks it looks gorgeous. In fact, iMore just did an article. I'm going to link it in the show notes because you're going to love this. Yeah, get in now. Uh, there's a uh, Mac and Windows bundle available for $69.99 if you, if you uh, switch back and forth between the Mac and the PC. You can get a single iOS version for $14.99 or – I'm sorry, single iOS version for $9.99 or an iOS Pro version for $14.99. That's a hybrid version that will both uh, work on your Mac and um, – I'm sorry, on your iPhone and on your iPad. So uh, check out 1Password, go through your wallet this weekend, throw all of your information into 1Password and tell them thank you for supporting Mac Power users. And, the, you know, the power tip there is you fill it out on your Mac, you know, you just sit behind your Mac and load that data up and it just shows up automatically because it's syncing over through Dropbox to your, your iPhone, your iPad, your iPad mini, your i whatever. So, David, what are, what are the options if someone is interested in self-publishing? Yeah, and you know, I think I jumped the shark there a little bit by just going straight to self-publishing. There's a good reason to to go through a big publisher because then you're a published author. You know, you're published through a major publishing house that gives you credibility. And that obviously there's an advantage there. So if you're a writer and someone comes to you and says I want to publish your book, that's that's something to not you know you don't want to just say no to that you want to think about it but either way so yeah, let's I say mean, you want to that's pretty cool I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a bookshelf and i've got mac at work by david sparks and you'll be happy is, is sitting right next to steve jobs by walter isaacson and i was by steve wozniak wow you, you're that's in my impressive. You, you're in my technology section well thank you of my little library 
Yeah. And that's exciting. It's thrilling to go into the bookstore and see your book on the shelf. And, uh, and I get emails from people sometimes who go into Barnes and Noble and just happen to take something like iPad at work and put it on the top shelf and then send me a picture of it. And I love you all, every single one of you. But, uh, I did go into the self publishing route and I had to decide what I was going to do at the time. The big options were EPUB and PDF. So EPUB is the open, you know, uh, format for book publishing. And it's, it's really kind of found its legs in the last three or four years as a way to format a book. And hopefully most of these readers can read it like the iPad can read EPUB and the Kindle, depending on which version of the Kindle you get can or can't, but like oh, all that's the other so confusing that some of them yeah. read them, but some of them don't. Well, uh, Kindle's really the only oddball in that regard. Uh, the, the original Kindle had, a proprietary format, then they've updated that as they've come out with new formats. And, and I don't really want to get into the real deep details because I'm going to step all over myself. But in essence, the Kindle format, a lot of times is an EPUB with a wrapper around it that has their DRM and some other stuff involved. But uh, they are trying to increase their format uh, compatibility, as I understand it. So, But you're, I was looking at EPUB, PDF, and the Amazon formats, which were the general areas I was looking to write a book in. And at the time I was thinking that I would probably make an EPUB version for uh, people to use on the iPad and a Amazon version for people to get with their Kindles. Makes and, sense. and I knew the book was going to be paperless because I wanted to write a book about paperless. And I had started writing the book um, late last year. And I was looking at and exploring ideas. And then I was also looking at the possibility of doing a PDF version and embedding the video because I knew I was going to go whole hog. I was going to put the video in about, you know, making a secure disk image and whatever else I wanted to make it. So uh, I was really in the exploratory phase of that stuff because I knew before, no matter what format I was going to go with, I was going to need some words and some ideas and some screencasts. So I, I really was playing at that point. I was working very hard on the the text of the book, but I, I wasn't really digging in on the final formatting. And then February of this year, Apple releases iBooks author, which was great for me. So iBooks author is Apple's solution. And we talked about this, I believe on the paperless show when we talked about the book a little bit, but iBooks author is an application that's for free. You can download it on any Mac from the Mac app store Apple releases it and it has got fantastic tools for creating a book. And it does some things that I really like. Uh, first of all, it makes gorgeous books. You know, you have a lot of control over the layout, the typography, and it's got these things called widgets where you can drop in pieces. Like if you've got a copy of paperless or 60 tips, um, you'll see a page with a description of something. And then next to it will be a little movie file and you tap it and it starts playing in its little frame or you can expand it and have it take over the whole screen. Um, it's got image galleries. So like when I did a traditionally published book and I wanted to have 20 screenshots to show something that's very complex, the publisher would say, Dave, you're crazy. We got to pay for every one of those color pages and we got to pay for it for every version. And, you know, you get five screenshots for this thing where now I could go nuts. I could make 20, I could make a hundred screenshots and they'd all be enclosed in this one widget. So the reader wouldn't have to flick through them all, but if they wanted to, they could just go in there and, and get access to them. Uh, you can embed a keynote file. I mean, all these great things. I mean, it was like 
my wet dream for a book writing tool. It's just perfect. So <laughs> I, you know, as soon as they announced it, I, w I had downloaded it. Um, I mean, the day was wrecked for me. You know, they announced it, you know, I said, okay, I'm done with the law job for today. Went home, downloaded it and immediately began working it. And I think they announced it like at 10 in the morning by five o'clock in the afternoon, I had text from the paperless book in it. So, and, and I burned all my ships, you know, I didn't go down any other route at that point. The Kindle thing went away, PDF, EPUB, forget it. Uh, as soon as I saw how this looked, I knew I was going to write a book in this. Uh, it's kind of interesting because at the same time, all the pundits were coming out with their, with their verdicts about iBooks author saying that it's not the right thing and it's not going to happen. And maybe they were right, you know, because, you know, it's limited to the iPad. There's a whole bunch of limitations we're going to talk about later in the show. But for what I do, which is try to teach people about using technology and particularly Apple technology, this, you couldn't have made something more perfect for me. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're Mac Sparky. It, I mean, what, what if you were Android Sparky? Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. Right. It wouldn't have worked. And, and later, just to jump forward, when the book came out, I got a lot of negative feedback saying, well, you know, you're an Apple sellout. You didn't make an Amazon version, blah, blah, blah. You know, but there's no way I could have done this on Amazon. If you look at the paperless book or 60 tips, but I think paperless even does a better job of showing you what you can do with this stuff because it's got more types of media in it. Um, there is, there's no tool to make an Amazon book that does what that book does. It doesn't exist. And at the time before iBooks author came out and Apple really got serious about this stuff, um, you know, Amazon's deal with authors really wasn't very good. I mean, when I first started looking into it, Amazon was going to take 70% of my sales and give me 30. Mm. Yeah. And then as soon as Apple got in the game, as, as I recall, um, I don't want to get sued, but I, I think it was right after Apple got in the game that they switched it where, um, cause Apple said, we'll take 30 and give you 70. And then immediately or very shortly after Amazon said, Oh yeah, me too. So it got much better for authors, but also Amazon has this weird thing about digital delivery costs. So when you sell a book through Amazon, not only do they get to keep their cut for being the Amazon store, but they also charge the author a fee for the cost of delivery. And kind, depending kind of on like how, they were hosting it for you, like on S3 or something like well, that. Well, it's or? just like, it's like the download cost, you know, right. it's like, well, Hey, you know, d data costs money and, you know, we're going to charge you for that. And there's an article Andrew Hyde wrote where he was, he was looking at the markup on that data cost and he estimated it was 129,000%. I mean, oh it was like, it was like crazy. What was the, uh, I forget what the number was, but you know, my book was 850 megabytes. Yeah. Huge book. Okay. But, but in fairness, your book wouldn't have been 850 megabytes on, on the Amazon store because you physically couldn't have made it that big. You couldn't have embedded the videos and things like that. Right. Yeah. But let's just pretend that I could have, that they had the tools for me to write it. Um, you know, uh, looking at Andrew's article, I'm going to go ahead and put it in Amazon's markup of digital delivery for indie authors back in June of this year. But in Andrew's book, which had some pictures in it, no video, he was looking at, I believe it was in the neighborhood of $2 and 58 cents or something per book. So he paid the, I guess, $3 plus another two fifty. So basically half 
the cost of the book. Now, if, if my book had gone up with all that stuff in it, I think for every book I sold, I would have owed Amazon like 20 bucks. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'd, I'm just, I just making that up. I don't know, but it, it, there's no way I would have made any money on it because my book is multiples of the size of his book. So my guess is it wouldn't have even made sense. So Amazon needs to work on that, but it didn't matter because I'm selling books about Apple technology and Apple people interested in this are going to largely own iPads. So if you're not doing the stuff I'm doing, you need to look at all those options, you know, and the, the short version of this is EPUB gets you the widest audience. It has fewer toys. You know, you can't embed a lot of stuff, but it's getting better. I mean, EPUB is getting refined and there is embeddable video now, and there are some things you can do, but it's not nearly the amount of control you get with iBooks author. Um, right. But can, at, can you even view e, and I don't know, I don't have a Kindle. Can you even view an EPUB file with an embeddable video on a Kindle? No, but there's many tools out there. Maybe if you had one of the Kindle HD and you had a specific reader that would let you. No, no. What the point would be, you'd write it in EPUB and then you'd, you'd put it into one of the tools that turns it into an Amazon file and upload it to Amazon and sell through Amazon. It's not much work to go from EPUB to EPUB plus Amazon. Right, right. But then you still got to do something with the video separately. Yeah. Well, possibly. And, um. I'm showing my ignorance here because this is such a moving target and I haven't kept up with it because now I found the best platform for me. And and then, then there's PDF, which I really haven't talked about much, but you know, PDF gets you the widest audience with the fewest toys. So you can make a PDF file and it will work on just about anything, but you know, you're really limited on the interactivity that you can do with it. And I did run tests about putting the files in a PDF file of paperless and embedding the videos. Cause there's some ways to do that. And it was just such a crapshoot in terms of being able to make it work and not having it crash the device. And it, you just face all the problems that, you know, windows Microsoft face with, you know, making windows for a thousand different kinds of computers. I mean, it, it just, because it works on one doesn't make mean it's going to work on another and the amount of Ram. And there's so many, there's so many moving parts that, you know, once you put it out there, there's a lot of people it's just not going to work for and they're going to be angry with you. So, uh, but, but that's another option too. But this, 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 um, episode's really mainly about iBooks author. I just wanted to kind of talk about the other formats. So if you're making something, you know what you're going to do. I mean, I, I received an email about somebody who wants to write books uh, about nursing and you don't know that all of your readers are going to own iPads. That's, so, yeah. I mean, you've got a pretty good bet that your readers are going to own iPads. Yeah, I, but I'm a, very a, lucky. Another topic doesn't. Yeah, but the good news is there's 100 million iPads out there now. And there's going to be even a lot more once these minis start getting accounted for. And there's a lot of people interested in nursing that have iPads. And if you want to make a really good book about nursing uh, and have embedded video and all the great whizzy stuff I have in paperless, it's not a bad place to do it. So you, know, you got to make your own decisions. And ultimately, and we'll talk about this later in the show, when I got to marketing the book, I ended up making a PDF version of my stuff. Yeah. Do you, do you want to talk about, and I, I know you want to focus on iBooks author, but do you want to talk about briefly how you decided to make the PDF? It was simple. I mean, I had people that want to read my book that couldn't. So I had to look into a way to do it. Um, I didn't want to do an EPUB. Uh, the way uh, Apple does the the agreement with iBooks author is if you make a book on iBooks author and you sell it, you have to sell it through the iBook store. They're right. saying, we made the stuff. You got to sell it through our store and then they get their 
but but my understanding is if you give it away for free, you can do anything you want with it, right? Exactly. Uh, but I wasn't going to give it away for free. I was yeah, I know. I got you. But they have they they say the iBooks author format. So if you did it in some other format, then it's okay. So I wrote the whole book in iBooks author. And then once it became clear, there's a lot of people in countries that don't have an iBook store that I could sell the book in or people who don't have an iPad who still wanted to read about paperless. I needed to have something for them. So I made a version of the book, which is a PDF. It's a PDF printed straight out of iBooks author. I mean, it's so you get the exact format that the people who buy the iBooks version get. It looks looks great, you know, uh, but I didn't embed the video in it, which I could have done with a lot of uh, skullduggery in, you know, a PDF application. I tried it and it just, like I said earlier, it's just too inconsistent and I didn't think I could rely on it. So I took all the video that I shot for the book and all the screenshots for the book and I formatted them for iTunes and put them in folders and nested folders. And then when you buy the PDF version now, you get a big file, a big folder with the PDF version at the root level and then a series of subfolders underneath with the video and the screenshots. And if you want to watch them on your iPad or your, your Mac, you can just drag it all into iTunes or you can just open each video selectively as you want. And that seems the best solution and people are happy with it. So that's what I'm doing. I also looked at the option of putting this stuff online and then you could like put in a password and you could do all this crazy stuff. But it just seemed to me like it was too many barriers for people who wanted to read it. I mean, one of my dirty secrets is none of my stuff is DRM'd. I don't want ever to get an email from someone who's who paid for my device, my stuff, and not be able to read it because of some DRM nonsense. So uh, I, you know, Apple gives you the option to have DRM or not. And it's not somebody listening to the show right now is going to go copy it off and give it to their friends. And, you know, shame on you. It's not that much money. Just buy it. But yeah. at the same time, I, I'm not going to deal with that. I just want the people who pay for it to be able to read it and I'll, I'll deal with the consequences. So anyway, you get, so you get this big uh, folder in the PDF. And so the people who couldn't buy the iBook can get it that way. And I've got a lot of emails from people very thankful that that option exists. So I'm glad it's there. Wow. 40 minutes in, we still haven't really got into it. There's more to cover here than, than I think we thought there was. Yeah, I know. So, so let's keep moving. Uh, let's do yeah. a little bit more and then a sponsor. All right. All right. Sounds good. So uh, how did, how did you, how did you come to the whole, how, how do you start this? How do you start planning the book? How do you figure out how you're, how you're going to do this? I mean, you don't just sit down and start writing it all out, right? No, I don't. At least that's not the way I work. Okay. Um, and if you can bless you because you're, you're, you're awesome. But my brain doesn't work that way. I've always, you know, the one thing I've learned is, as I, as I go through life is I'm not very smart. I just have to like work really, really hard on things to get somewhere. And I guess that helps me because it takes so long for me to figure out something by the time I get to the end, I can explain it better. Um, but we did a show called cooking ideas where I made that big admission. And so everything I do of any relevance goes through a whole, you know, process where I come up with the idea, then I start mind mapping and outlining and drawing on napkins and throwing darts and, you know, rending my garments and everything else that it takes to give birth to something uh, that is of any use at all. Right. What show is that? Uh, let me see here. Mac Power we'll, Users. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. All right. Yeah. So go go listen to that show if you want. But that's how it starts with these books. 
you know, uh, I come up with an idea paperless and I just start spitballing ideas into a mind map on my iPad and it spends maybe a month or two there getting, you know, fleshed out and, and kind of exploring all the pieces of it. And so that, that's a whole, there's a whole show on it. And I recommend you go see it. It's one of my favorite shows that we've ever done. Uh, so if you haven't listened to it, go check it out. But once I have a, a mind map built and an outline and I've looked at it and slept on it and changed it and deleted parts and then put those deletions back in and then deleted them again. And I, at some point I get to a place where I'm ready to start writing. And for that, I'd recommend going to listen to probably the first Mac at work show, the first Mac at work book show where I talked about how I drop everything into Scrivener and I just love Scrivener and I still do. It's a great application to do a serious writing project. And because of OPML, a format that we've talked about several times on the show, uh, I can take a Omni outline um, or a, a mind map that supports OPML export. And I can send that out to this OPML file and Scrivener will take the OPML file and build an outline for your book for you automatically based on that outline. And once that's done, it's then I have to do the hard work of, of writing. And and you mo- do most of that in Scrivener, correct? All, almost all the actual writing or? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, sort of. Let's do a sponsor and I'll talk about how I write. Okay. Well, why don't we talk next about the, the Omni group and specifically let's talk about text expander and the Omni group. Cause that's been yeah. a big deal for a long time. Isn't that great? So Text Expander has been on the Mac for a long time, which is another one of our sponsors, by the way. Right. And you know, Text so we Expander, get a for here. Yeah. Well, you know, or or Text Expander gets a free one there anyway. So Text Expander gives you the ability to write a, a quick snippet and have something explode out into text, and you know, got started to do email addresses and a lot of the basic stuff. But but very quickly, I realized that using OmniFocus, which I do every day, creating new inbox items. Why not use Text Expander? I mean, when we get an email from a listener and I want to put it in the show outline, I type dot ATO and it says add to Mac Power Users Outline space dash space. And then it just inserts right before the content of the email as it goes to Text Expander. So very quickly, I can create these entries. And for years, they worked on my Mac great, but they never worked on the iOS devices because. Um, Omni Outliner didn't have the hooks into Text Expander Touch, but that's no longer true. So now you can use all of that stuff that you develop on your Mac or just on your iOS device right into an Omni Focus on your iOS device. And that has just been such a godsend because, uh, David, I know you've created all these Text Expander snippets and I've kind of stolen some from you. Thank you very much. I I posted a bunch of them. Online, so go to Max Sparky. You can download them. I put some samples up there, you know. But that's just to get you started. Everybody's got their own thing, except you, Katie. Now you can use the exact ones I use, so because so many of them are tied to the show. Are you? Did you just like just rip I, them I, off entirely? I, I did. I did change your um the triggers though. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, good for you. <laughs> So basically what you've got is, is, is you've got text expander snippets that will tell you to um, remember, like, cre- plan a task about or plan a project about this or new phone call to this person or respond to these emails or, I mean, what kind of things do you have your text expander snippets do? 
Yeah, all of the above. Yeah. All, anything that I'm going to create a task about, you know, I I have one called Noodle On. You know, as somebody just today I had a meeting at work and uh, a client gave me an idea of something we can do on this case. And I just, you know, uh, dot N-O-O, Noodle On. And then I typed in the thing we're going to do. And it's something that I want to think about the best approach to take. Um, I, I've got so many of these things and they just become second nature after a while. And I just love having them on the, on the iPhone and the iPad. My 16 year old looks at me and she watches me type on my iPhone and it pains her. It, it pains her to watch me because I'm so slow when I type on this thing. <laughs> and I guess, I don't know. I just can never get into the hang of like really flying on it. But with these snippets, you know, this stuff just pops right in there. It's great. So you never really have to be that fast yeah. on it. You can just have a yeah. few characters and everything expands. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, the idea of OmniFocus in your pocket is is really powerful because not only do you have access to all of the lists and the context and all the work you've put into creating an OmniFocus database to get you know get work done, it also gives you this great idea of ubiquitous capture that you can be anywhere and add something. I, I had lunch today with uh, the communicatrix. Remember Colleen Wainwright? She oh, was on yeah. our show. Yeah. So every time I sit down with Colleen, she gives me like five books to read. And so I've got my iPhone out and I'm just like adding in the inbox. Boom, boom, boom. I'm putting all these books in there in my inbox so I can go check them out. So OmniFocus on your phone does that. Well, you add to that the text expander snippet expansion and you can understand. It just makes everything much faster. So so go check it out. Um, if you've already got uh, OmniFocus for your phone, then you definitely want to plug it into text expander touch and start using it immediately. Feel free to go to the website and take down my, uh, my snippets and add your own. In fact, if you come up with some good ones, please send them to me. Cause I'm always looking for new stuff I can use. And if you haven't got OmniFocus yet for your iPhone, go get it cause you're missing out. And with this, uh, text expander touch integration, it's even better. So check it out. Yeah, well, you can pick up OmniFocus for the Mac. It's $80. It's available either in the Mac App Store or available from OmniDirect. You can pick up OmniFocus for the iPad for $40, or the iPhone version is available for $20. And thanks, Omni Group, for supporting the Mac Power users. I love those guys. Anyway. Okay, so where was I? I I've got the outline. I put it in, in um, Scrivener, and then I just start writing. And I just had a conversation with somebody, you know, Michael Schechter over at A Better Mess. Right. Smart guy. He's writing a book now. And he says, what's the best advice? I said, the best advice is get the first draft in. Just, I called it a word that I'm pretty sure we'd lose our, our clean tag if I said. But the, <laughs> but the something, something first draft. Just get the something, something first draft in. And don't worry about it. Just get the words in. They're you just have to accept that they're going to be terrible. And they pretty much are, but it, you are ahead. If you can get the first draft written, you are ahead of 98% of the people who decide they're going to write a book. Absolutely. So, so just get it in and it's, it's true. I still have trouble with it because, you know, I'm always working on books now because I'm really into this stuff, but it's still hard to get that something, something first draft in, but just do it, you know, make the time. If you have to wake up an hour early every day, if you have to, you know, take a little extended lunch, you know, I, I'm talking in the context of my life where I've got another day job, but wherever you are in life, find some time, set it aside, or just, you know, give yourself some goals reasonable. Don't go nuts. Cause it's, 
It's going to be terrible if you try and do it all in a day, but just keep chipping away at it. And that's one of the reasons why Scrivener is so good is that you see, you can just open it up in little bite-sized pieces and say, okay, today I'm going to work on the section about OmniFocus. And then you can just work in that section. And that's, you know, when you're done, you feel like a sense of accomplishment. You've got the something, something first draft done on that. And then tomorrow you can pick something else. So really, you would not encourage, I mean, some people say, oh, I'm going to write this cover to cover, start to beginning in order, not the way well, to go. If you're writing a novel that may make, that may make a lot of sense. I don't know. I've never written fiction, but for nonfiction tech books, there's no reason to do it that way. I, I look, I, I wake up and I say, okay, what's the section in here I'm really excited about writing? And I'm going to write that right now. Okay. And, or sometimes it's, what's the section that I'm least, you know, angry about writing? <laughs> I don't know how to put, you know, sometimes you say, well, you know, I'm not really excited about writing any of these parts today, but this part I think I could do right now. And you just write it and get it going. I, I use, uh, I use Scrivener to keep track of the project. I don't necessarily write every piece in Scrivener. I mean, I might put like by word, the current book I'm working on. I don't want to give away the title cause it's really exciting, but like I'll pick one of the two or three of the little subjects and I'll just open a byword file saying book file. And then I'll write the headings of those two or three sections and just put them there. And then I may write a bunch of that in byword at lunch today. And eventually I'll just block and copy it and put it in Scrivener and it'll go in the right place. But in general, you know, Scrivener is the place where I manage it all. Another thing I may do is I may go to the park and take my little microphone and record um, a bunch of it just, just off the top of my head. And then I'll go back and use drag and dictate to pull the text out and put it in. You just got to, you know, it's just like uh, fighting your way, you know, through a big battle. You use whatever tool is available to you to get some text written. I remember reading an article about a guy who wrote a book on the New York subway using a feature phone where he had to tap the button three times. Oh my to get goodness. Each letter. The, what, what is that called? And it's not, um, Oh, that's miserable. But he did it and, you know, it took him a long time, but, you know, he labor over each sentence and at the end he had a really good book, uh, you know, so whatever you got, use it, get out a pencil and paper and write it down. You know, it just, the, the, the name of the game is getting text into the system more than anything. And, and it, even if you're going to do like a tech book, like I'm doing, don't worry about screencasts. Don't worry, worry about screenshots. Get the text and get the principles down, you know, start getting that going. The rest of it will come later, but, but fight your way through it and just keep working on it. Make sure you feel like you're making some progress and be forgiving with yourself when you don't. Yeah. I that's mean, what, that's what I was going to ask you is, do you do, I would imagine that you would do all the screencasts and all of the, um, uh, the shot, uh, the, um, clippings, uh, all the, uh, sc uh screenshots, would be last because you, number one, you, you want them to be closest in time to you publish because you never know what software changes or things are going to be. And number two, you don't really know what the final text is going to be, right? Yeah. And you're right. You, you wait, wait till the end on that stuff. So, uh, so it's a tough grind. And if you want to write a book, you just got to sit down and do it. Now you can't, I would imagine you can't do this all yourself because at some point you just become numb to the whole idea and, and you either love everything you've written or hate everything you've written. Do you have to go out and get some help and find somebody objective to, to look at this and, 
and tell you when you've gone over the cliff or, or yeah, tell you yeah. when this is a really bad idea. Or- and that was one of the advantages of, of working with Wiley. The, the two people I had proofreading for me were great. I mean, one of them was a really smart technology guy. And the other one was a really smart grammar person and, but who was also interested in technology. So she kind of gave me the perspective of somebody who doesn't really know what this stuff is about, but you know, she could tell me when she got lost. Uh, and one of the concerns I had as I was doing this book, and I know I've told this story, I just can't remember if it's on this podcast or not, but the analogy I kept using at the time was, was George Lucas, you know, George Lucas made these great movies, um, in the seventies when he had a big studio looking over his shoulder and all this oversight. And then he made these other movies later with no oversight. Um, I don't remember what the second movies were about, but cause I didn't really pay much attention to him, but I know the first ones were really good. So I didn't want to be like George Lucas and say, okay, so he made some good books when he had people looking over his shoulder and then he made his own books and they were, you know, not so good. So I knew I needed help on that stuff, but to be honest, I really didn't bring help in until I was pretty far down the process. And I had a friend who does a lot of technology proofreading and uh, she did it for me. I mean, I paid her and she found it's Leilani. She's in the credits of the book, so you'll find her. And I'd recommend her if anybody wants to do any tech writing and needs a good proofreader. But so I had her looking at it for me and she was able to point out things where I was, you know, off my nut. And with paperless, I was really, I was so freaked out about that problem that I actually sent it out to several friends to read. In fact, I think you got a, a, an advanced mm-hmm. copy and you gave me some feedback on a couple points. So I was looking for lots of feedback on it, but I didn't want to squelch my voice. You know, one of the you know things I said in the, one of the very first things I wrote about the Max Barkey Field Guides was my mission statement. You know, what do I want this to be? And I wanted these books to be something for people not necessarily people who are already super nerds, but people who want to get good at this stuff. And I wanted, you know, the, the term of art I coined was badass wielder of technology. And I remember writing that. And as I wrote the words, I was thinking, there's no way my old publisher would let me put that in a book. And then you smiled. Yeah, exactly. And so I didn't want to lose that voice as it went through this editing process, but it definitely needs editing. If you just write something yourself and publish it, you know, that's Bush League. Don't do that. Get yourself a proofreader. And I know you said you brought them in later, but I would imagine you don't give the entire finished book to the to the publisher or excuse me, to the editor and say, here you go. Give me no. let, me, let me get that back it, next week. You, I gave it chunks. to her. Yeah, I gave it to her in pieces. And because of the way this thing was coming together, I did it wrong. I, I did it in um, an iBooks author because I was trying to learn the application at the same time I was writing the book. Um, in these later books I'm doing now, what the workflow I'm using is, you know, I write the text, get it really good. Then I put it into pages and then I give it to the proofreader in pages where she can track changes and get it back to me. So I'm really, you know, this, the stuff I used to mock my big publisher about, I'm doing myself now I'm writing the, th- the book in Scrivener, but at some point I'm taking the text out of Scrivener and putting it into a word processor with track changes feature and sending it to proofreaders so I can see what they change. And then once I get the text pretty good, then the whole thing goes into iBooks author. And then it never goes back into Scrivener after it comes out. Exactly. Exactly. And the book, you know, and the book I did with Brett, um, the 60 tips book, there's not that much text in that book. The focus of that book was getting the tricks across. So that one, we didn't. Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. I cut off. Um, 
So in that book, the, you know, we really never, I never worked in Scrivener in that book. We wrote it using Google Docs because, you know, there's not that much text in it. I got sidetracked. So did you, did you write that entire book in Google Docs? Uh, well, I wrote the entire book, my portion of it in Byword, and then I'd copy it to Google Docs. Wow. That's. But there's not wow. that many words in that book. I mean, it's a 60 tips book. You know, it's mainly about the video. Uh, that never would have worked for paperless, which is something like, I don't remember now. I think it was 25,000 words or something. There's a lot of words in that book. Right. Uh, but anyway, so uh, these days, if I'm writing stuff, I'm trying to get it out of Scrivener at some point into pages to the proofreader. And then from there into iBooks author. So is it, is it time now to talk about iBooks author and about yeah. how that process actually works? Yeah, definitely. So if you've if you're ready to write a book and you want to use iBooks Author, I hope you didn't um, underestimate the work that goes involved before you open it up and start working in it. That's I mean I guess that's why it took this long to get here because I think just opening iBooks Author and starting your book in there is a mistake. It's a great publishing program. It's not a great word processor. So the last step before you go to iBooks Author is you've got this in a page, just so we know where we are. Yeah. You, you've got this in a pages document. Changes has been tracked. It's been proofread. So your text, for the most part, I'm sure you may make, you may find one or two things and make a few tweaks in iBooks author, but your text should be done at this point, right? I, I would like to say that it's done, but it, a lot of changes still happen, even despite my best efforts, but you okay. know, getting back to it, you know, you're right. So I've got this pages file and uh, I get going in iBooks author. But before we talk about getting the text in, I just want to talk a little bit about templates. Now, if you open iBooks author, Apple has created some really great templates. Um, and the ones they use are really nice. In fact, paperless is based on one of the built-in templates with a bunch of modifications. Um, there are third-party templates you can buy. If you go on the Mac App Store, there's a bunch of people who have created templates that they have for sale. Um, you can also roll your own and I'm not an expert on doing that. I think an HTML programming knowledge would be really helpful for doing that. And you have to be a little careful because the format's a little wonky. Uh, uh, Brett Terpster did a lot of the design work on the 60 tips book and some of the features we kind of lost along the way. Um, and I don't want to really get into all the details, but for instance, um, copying the video in, if we would share the file back and forth, it would lose the links. Whereas if I just did it in the original iBooks author formatted templates, it would keep them. So at some point, you know, some of the internal stuff broke. But we did come out with a really nice design and, and the readers never saw it because the final version is all compacted together. It was just for the editing process that we had a little trouble. And that was that was because you were using a, a completely custom template or was that yeah. what you were customizing yourself? No, we, we, we had a homegrown one and, and we had some issues. And I'm sure if we had devoted some cycles to it, we would have figured it out, but we really didn't need to because we were collaborating. I didn't embed video into it to the very end because those files get massive. I mean, the eight, uh, paperless is 850 megabytes or so as a download, but the iBooks author file is like 1.2 gigabytes. So you could imagine if I was collaborating with someone with that, every time we'd make changes, Dropbox would have to grind on it for an evening before we could, the other person could see it. 
so we didn't want to do that. And, you know, that's a whole nother discussion about collaboration. But in, in that case, I kind of kept control of the file and was sending him more PDFs and printouts of it than I was saying, let's both take turns working in it because I just knew it was a recipe for disaster, which gets back to the point that iBooks author is not a great word processor or writing tool. Um, it doesn't really support collaboration very well. And wasn't that some of the updates and changes that the most recent version of iBooks author got just a few weeks ago is, is it got some more templates? Yeah, well, it got more templates and also they have now a portrait only mode, uh, you know, which is kind of interesting. I haven't, I don't see that any of the field guides are going to get that treatment, but if you're writing like a novel, um, that makes sense to me. And one of the good big points about iBooks author is as an author, you have control of the layout in the landscape mode. And that's the general rule. So like if you look at paperless or 60 tips in landscape mode, you see it exactly how I wanted it. When there's a little flourish on the page, it's exactly where I placed it on my computer. And the word at the end of this page is the word as I placed it. And the, the carriage breaks that everything in there was laid out by me by hand. Um, when you turn it into portrait mode, then it gives you more ability to change font sizes and do other things. And it's got a whole different format which is cleaner and some people prefer that. But if you want to see it in what I call the prettified way, you just turn it over to landscape mode and you'll see just how I wanted it. Now the newest iBooks author, which is 2.0 just came out recently. They've got some custom portrait modes that allow you to do the same thing where you control everything in portrait mode. Um, I think that my books generally lend themselves to landscape mode better because they're instructional and there's a lot of video and stuff and having words on the left side of the screen and video on the right side or something like that is advantageous. Sure. So where was I? So, so get a good template um, and, and spend some time with it. Cause once you get going on it, it's a lot of work to try and fix a template. Once you fill it up with words and images and all kinds of crazy stuff happens. So, you know, spend some time getting your template, right. Then start getting your text in. And the way I do it is kind of kludgy. The, you know, in theory, you're supposed to be able to take a, a pages document and import it and it'll capture the headings and make sure everything works. But I, I just distrust that. And I haven't tried it with, with iBooks author 2.0, which is the newest version out. But with the prior versions, it didn't always work the way I wanted. In fact, it sometimes brought formatting that I didn't want. So I really like having what I call virgin formatting, you know, where it's just plain text, you know, like even to the extent where I could take the text out of pages and drop it into text edit as a plain text file format it plain text. So I know there's nothing there, but the words. And then I, then I put it into the relevant chapter or section in iBooks author, and it'll just pick up the formatting from my template and it'll look great. And I know that there's no hidden embedded stuff in there. That's going to cause trouble. Now, what that means, however, is that as I go through the process of writing the book, I'm not going to be putting hyperlinks and things like that in till the very end when I'm an iBooks author. And I just use brackets when I write, I just put a bracket in the side and I put, you know, link to, you know, star Wars clip or whatever I'm going to have there. And then when I go through and start proofreading an iBooks author, then I create all the links right in iBooks author. Oh, so that's interesting. So in your iBooks author file, you'll have the word star Wars, and then you'll have in brackets link this to star star Wars video clip or something like that. Yeah. And so if you miss it, I'm sure you read these things over and over and over again. But if you miss it, it's going to look kind of weird. You just yeah, have this bracket there. I'm not going to miss it. Don't miss it. Okay. 
I'm not going to miss it. I mean, that, so you're you're not writing these in Markdown. I, I think we covered that before, but you're not writing these in Markdown or creating links. It's just it's just pure plain text when you're writing. No, these. Th- that's the funny part is I write them in Markdown, but I don't use a Markdown parser to do the Markdown work for me. Huh. So when I want to italicize a word, I put underscores around it. When I want to bold it, I put two underscores around it. So then you go back in iBook author and remove the two underscores and click the bold button. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is just completely insane. But that way, because if not, how am I going to remember? I wanted to bold that word. I don't know. I guess if you're writing it all in plain text, that's how you have to do it. Yeah. Unless, unless you get some kind of um, rich text workflow, but then you have to trust iBooks author to import it the way you want it. I don't trust it. I don't know if I ever will. I mean, I just having written books and dealt with this stuff. When you bring formatting into from one program to another, no matter how, even though it's written by the same company, it, something could go wrong and you'll spend hours and hours trying to figure it out and find out that there's some kind of hidden formatting and some word that you didn't even know existed. And it's just, it's just asking for trouble. So it doesn't take me that long to go through because I obviously proofread it many times as it gets on the book. And then I load it onto my iPad and I read it forward and backward. And I've got Lilani helping me and I've got all these people, you know, supporting me in this stuff. So it's okay. Well, so I, it's I a guess very, it just it, depends on how long the book is and how many words it is. Yeah. I mean, so if, it's, it's a very, if it's a 200,000 word textbook, that could be a problem. Yeah, I guess. But I don't think you're going to be writing a 200,000 word textbook and iBooks author. Well, I guess you Apple would. says you are. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But for me, I'm just fine with the way I'm doing it. It's, it's low tech, but it works. Right. And then, you know, then comes the fun part, you know, the dessert where you start putting stuff in, you know, you and it's the widgets in iBooks Author. Just go download iBooks Author and start playing with the widgets in a sample book. It's it's not hard. If you can run pages in Keynote, you can write a book on iBooks Author. I mean, you put the images gallery and you drag an image in and you drag it from your desktop, put it in, you know, use a little, you know, foresight with this stuff, you know, use the instant alpha tools and make it look nice. If you want to put a, uh, like for instance, paperless, and I've got a lot of mixed feedback from this. Generally people like the way paperless looks where I put some kind of interesting clip art on pages. Like when I'm talking about security, I may have a picture of an old key and the idea of it in my head was, Hey, this is a field guide and I want it to feel kind of antique And there's kind of a contrast between this high tech book and this antique feel. And I still like it and I'm going to be using it in the future. So neener, neener, but some people just really hate it, but a lot of people love it, you know? So now changing topics for a second, wh- where did all that clip art come from? Cause that's yeah, important. I, yeah. I went to, you know, I, I, obviously I didn't just start ripping it off. I went and bought oh, it. Oh, from... you didn't just do a Google search and start pulling off people's web pages. Cause no, you know. no, I didn't. Although here's a trick while you're writing and you know, you're going to want some clip art and you want a placeholder there, use Google images and go get something like that, but just make sure that you replace it before you finish the book. I mean, I just can't overemphasize how much time I spend after tonight books author going it over and over and over again. So there's never any risk that I'm going to leave something in there that shouldn't be there. I, I'm sorry. I cut you off. What, what did you actually, what service did you actually use to, to pull all your stuff? Okay, let me go grab it. I use deposit photos. Okay. Deposit photos.com. But uh, I looked at their license and it said that, you know, I can use it for a book and 
I didn't have to, you know, pay for the license that I, I could afford for each one. And it was like, you know, four or $5 an image. And I didn't have to get the largest size because this is, it doesn't need to be that large. I, I minimized a lot of them down. A lot of them came already with the background removed, but the others I could remove with an instant alpha right in iBooks author. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was fun kind of putting little quirky pictures in and making it fun as I go through the book. So I'm going to keep doing it for now. But depositofphotos.com is one I use. I know there's others out there, so you don't have to use one I did. But in fact, I think there's a lot of photo services as you start researching it. But I like their their variety. I thought their prices were good. Their license seemed like it worked for me, and and I was off to the races. The other thing I did was every time I used a photo, I, I kept track of who the photographer was, and I gave them credit at the end of the book. So I, there's a lot of credits at the end of Paperless. And 60 Tips, we didn't use a lot of clip arts, so there aren't as many. Um, but then, then there's the whole video workflow. So my books had a lot of video in it, both camera shot video and screencasts. And for those, I shot them all in ScreenFlow. Um, the ones that were from the iPad or iPhone, I used Reflections. I did buy um, a Blackmagic device that allows me to go HDMI straight into my Mac uh, from the HDMI port, you know, converter off the iPad or iPhone. But I found that Reflections did just just fine for the size video I was using for the book. And oh. it, it even put the nice little like image of the iPad around it. So it saved me a lot of work in post-production. Yeah, that's like $14 versus a heck of a lot more for the Blackmagic well, box. I, pay, I paid 300 for the Blackmagic. And I still use it on occasion because it's... It, you know, I, I'd like to get Don's uh, Don McAllister's feedback on this because the Black Magic thing is hardwired in; it doesn't drop a single frame. It's like lock solid. So, did I say lock solid? You did. Okay, I've talked a lot in this show, so please excuse my nonsense. But anyway, it's rock solid; it just nails it. Whereas, if you have a poor Wi-Fi connection with Reflections, it's going to look bad. So, you know, you got to make your choose your own poison. But for the stuff I was doing, this came out just fine. Um, and if I was getting like stuttering or bad frame rates, I would, you know, walk around the house and find out what my kids are downloading you know, <laughs> or, or whatever's going on or turn off, you know, the backups or whatever was going on and, and I'd get it right. So just be conscious of the product, but, you know, so I would, I would record that stuff into ScreenFlow, or I do it straight off the Mac into ScreenFlow, And I spent a lot of time on the screencasts. And they may sound like I'm just from the hip on those, but I rehearsed them. Um, I spent a lot of time making the background clip art. And like the, if I'm working on a document, I would write a whole letter to use as the, you know, background letter for the book. And in fact, they tell their own story. Like the other stuff I've done, I always try to make it kind of fun. If you stop and read the little stuff, there's actually interesting things going on. And um, so that stuff, weeks and weeks and weeks of work go into that. And once you get them done, then you, the best way to, to put them into iBooks author that I found was to export it from ScreenFlow lossless and then import, open the file in QuickTime and export it from QuickTime for the iPhone 4 and 4S at the time. Now, I guess I would say iPhone 5. I haven't looked in QuickTime lately. And that version goes into iBooks author with no pain or suffering. And it looks great on the iPhone. So, so now ScreenFlow has an option that will export for iPhone and all that, that gave you grief. It, it would not import. It wouldn't play. 
they, there's something weird. going on. And since I did that, uh, that we've got both a new version of iBooks author and a new version of ScreenFlow. So it might work now. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, but either way, I didn't mind it. It looked fine. But so I, I took it lossless though out of ScreenFlow. So it was a really clean and, uh, and that's the trick there. So you put the videos in, you get the images in and pretty soon you've got a pretty good looking book. And the next step really is to spend a lot of time in that proofreading stage. And in iBooks author, you can push a button to squit, switch it between virtual landscape and virtual portrait mode. Look at every single page in both modes, because sometimes things will work in one mode and they won't work in another. And you just got to make sure it, it works right. I mean, then you get into the, the book layout business. I mean, you're no longer an author and you're a layout guy. And uh, that's a lot of work too. So I guess, is that the theme here? Writing a book is a lot of work. It, it seems to be. It yeah. seems to and, be. And now the iPad mini is on the stage. So that's changing everything. Like paperless, I'm not happy with the way paperless looks on an iPad mini um, because the combination of a non-retina screen and the smaller screen makes the typography too hard to read. It looked great on the bigger iPad. It looked awesome on a retina iPad. But I think the next version of paperless, I'm going to have to increase the font size of the text, which is going to really mess things up for me because <laughs> the whole layout of the book is just going to get knocked on its side and I'm going to have to relay out the whole book. So well, that's going to happen eventually, but not in the immediate future. And that's something that you have to do across the board, right? Because you were talking about when the book is in landscape mode, we are seeing it exactly how you laid it out. Yeah. So particularly if- in landscape mode. So like all the clip art's going to get moved, the, placeholders for the videos got to get moved. I mean, it's just, it's going to be almost like relay. It's just going to be a massive project, but it's going to happen. And portrait mode, it's not as big of a deal, but I know I'm going to upset the apple cart and something's going to go wrong in portrait view because of all the changes I'm making in landscape. So that's a big project I'll have in front of me there. Yeah. But, but then there's also the issue of, is it, are you going to be able to come up with a happy medium that looks good on both the iPad mini and the, the regular iPad? Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to go nuts, but the the text is going to get bigger. And, you know, I think some people didn't like it on the regular size iPad. I think I was right at the line there as it was. So uh, if you increase the point size a bit, I think that will be fine. Well, and then everything may change in a year when we get a Retina iPad mini or so. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But I do think it's a little small. And going forward, the point size of the books are going to be a little bit bigger. In fact, if you look at 60 tips, you'll see that the text point size is larger in that book. And then there's other things you can do on the iBooks author. You can have, you put glossary entries in. And I had a lot of fun with that in um, paperless, you know, because I was able to create glossary entries that nobody would ever let me publish. Oh dear. Yeah. And then the, uh, so it's really a a great format. I mean, just looking at the whole process, I am so thankful of Apple putting this together. I know it's not cool to sit here and praise multi-billion dollar companies, but they, what they did with iBooks author made it, made it possible for the Max Sparky field guides to exist in a way that is so much better than I ever thought they could. And some nerdy, you know, semi-literate attorney out here in California could make something really beautiful and fun that, that has helped a lot of people. I, I just, I'm really thankful. Be careful of your file size though. 
I think one gigabyte's the max, really. You know, there are people out there still with iPad ones. I want the, you want the book to work on all the iPads. Maybe in a couple of years, uh, you can start to forget about supporting iPad one, but not yet. Um, realistically, I think about one and a half hours is the maximum amount of video you can put in a book. I mean, the reason the books with Brett was 60 tips was if we put 80 tips in, the book would have started breaking. I, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And, and there are only so many, I mean, size constraints, a 16 gigabyte iPad will only hold so much. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I do. I am conscious of that. Like people who download my book and have a 16 gigabyte iPad, I'm taking like a huge percentage of their total storage for my book. So it better be good. Right. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, kind of the final steps of, you know, proofing it, selling it, getting it out there. Um, yeah. But before we do, why, why don't we talk about our last sponsor? And that is the Fujitsu ScanSnap. So I've been uh, I've been doing a few little home renovation projects recently, which is interesting to be renovating a brand new home. You know, it's just kind of those little final touch up things that I, I wish I had done back when I built the home a year ago. But, you know, for whatever reason, didn't didn't have the money free to do it at that time or didn't want the builder to do it. So I've, I've had workmen in here. I've had painters in here. I've had carpenters in here. And. I've been having to match a bunch of stuff. I, I, you know, I had to match the trim. I had to match the wall paint. I had to match the, um, um, the, the, uh, paint that we used in multiple rooms and just all of these details that I had to figure out to make things exactly like they were a year ago when I originally built this house. And I could not have done that if I was not paperless at the time I built this house. Building this house was almost an entirely paperless project for me. Because the builder would give me something or I would sign something or I would get all the information um, about what was going on with this house. And immediately, as soon as that happened, I would run it through my scan snap, these stacks and stacks and stacks of paper, and then shred it. And that has been such a godsend going back and, and trying to figure out, okay, exactly what is that paint or exactly – do you know how many types of trim there are when you go to the hardware store? A lot. It's ridiculous. It really is. I mean, you go there and I say, I just want trim. It, no, it's ridiculous. There's names for them. But I was able to, you know, on my phone in Evernote, pull up the original contractor specs and find the exact name and the exact model or, or you know, SKU number or whatever of the trim that was used that I was trying to match for the crown molding that I was put up because – Way back a year and a half ago when I was building this house, I got some scrap of paper from the builder that I had run through my ScanSnap at some point, that I'd had the ScanSnap OCR, and that ended up on my phone, standing in like aisle 23. Yeah, you get so spoiled with a ScanSnap because anything you have, is, it's so quick, you just stick it in there and you press one button and you've captured it forever. I mean, I use it every day. I've got it plugged in at work. I've got it plugged in at home. And, uh, I talked to people who listen to the show and they're like, you know, you've been talking about ScanSnap. I finally got one and now I get it. It's just so easy. And the question becomes, which one do you get? Well, if you working at a desk all day, get yourself to 1500. I mean, that's the fastest, most powerful one. And if you've got the room for it, just leave it plugged in and turned on and something shows up, you stick it in there you push the button. It comes out the other end and you've, you've captured it. 
Yeah, it's got that nice document feeder where you can stick up to 50 pages in there at a time and push the button and walk away. Although you don't have to walk away for long because it's pretty darn quick. Yeah, it's so fast that people now are digitizing their old books. They're taking their old books and just, you know, taking them out of the spine and scanning the whole book. 50 pages at a time, it happens pretty fast. I haven't done that with books, but I have done that with almost all of my um, user manuals Yeah, for, it's you like, know, whatever at the house. It's like an endorphin. It's like, oh, there's more paper. I can get rid of it. Scan it, shred it, whatever. It's gone. And then if you don't want the 1500, if you don't have the space for it, I'd recommend the 1300i. And um, what that does is it's a little smaller, still has a sheet feeder, still does both sides at once, but you can put it in the drawer when you're done with it. And you can really take it with you if you need it when you want to be portable. I always thought this would be a good one. Like if you had a computer, you know, downstairs in your house and you want to just get your mail and just scan it right there, you could stick it in there. And uh, you can also take it with you on the road. You know, it's a little, it's a, it's, um, it's just much smaller and it's, it's really fast. It's a great one. Yeah. This, the last- is, this is the one that I set my mom up with. My, my dad's got the, um, the 1500 or whatever the prior version of the 1500 was in his office where he does all the major scanning. Yeah. But my mom's got a little 1300 set up in, in her den where she does all of her stuff. So yeah. they've, and, they've got competing scan stamps going in the house. And if you really want portability, it's the 1100, which is really small. It runs off USB. So you just plug it in. It doesn't have the sheet feeder because it's so small, but it's got all the great scan snap software plugged into it. And that really is a selling point for me. The The ScanSnap software is just fantastic. It supports the Mac. It's got the OCR built in. You can customize where it's going to save. You can change the name of the file. If you read the paperless book, I did like a whole screencast showing you how to run the software because there's just so much you can do with it. You can highlight sections of the page and it'll add those to your spotlight comments. I mean, they just thought of everything. And it's a great ecosystem if you want to go paperless in your life. And uh, I can't think of a better one for Mac users than Fujitsu ScanSnap. And we really appreciate them sponsoring the show. But, you know, regardless of that, if you need to get paper out of your life, just get yourself one. Christmas is coming up. Get yourself a gift. Yeah. And then you, too, can be standing in aisle 23 of the hardware department trying to figure out what kind of crown molding you need to buy. Yeah. And come up with the answer. That's really helpful. So thank you, ScanSnap, for supporting the show, and everybody go check them out. Yeah, and uh, if you want to help out the show, the link you should go to check them out is ez.com slash SSMPU. That stands for ScanSnap MPU. There you go. All right, right. so David, what is the last step? You've got this book done. You think you're ready to go. You're about ready to hit the publish button, but you want to give it one more read-through. Yeah, it's really... uh Definitely give it one more read through and then two more read throughs and put it on your iPad and read it and send it to a couple of friends and have them read it. You know, whenever you think it's done, that means you're two weeks away from being done. So spend plenty of time going through, but at some point you're going to be ready to push the button. And how do you do that? Well, in the iBook store, uh, you want to, you want to get, that's where you're selling this book. Uh, you can, you can publish it from iBooks author to the iBooks format. And that's that proprietary format I was talking about earlier. Apple doesn't want you selling it anywhere but the iBookstore. And um, there's an application. You, know, you sign up through Apple has a, an author program. Basically, you sign up and become an author through them. And you get an account. And there's an application called iTunes Producer. And you actually put the book up or submit the book through iTunes Producer. 
Now, this is all changing as we record this podcast because they just came out with the second version. And a couple of the things that were fiddly before no longer are. For instance, you want to have a sample version of your book so people can download a free version. I didn't know you could do that. You That must be a new feature because I know you've been able to do that on the Kindles for a while. No, it's since the beginning. There was a free version of Paperless from the beginning. So you could download a sample and it's got several pages and some of the screencast and you know as much as I wanted to share for free and and then it's got some stuff in there about why it's a great book and you should buy it and it's got a buy now button you buy it and it upgrades it to the full version huh I guess well, I guess I just bought it right out yeah well actually I sent you a code because oh. you're special well I've bought it too I've oh sent, you did yeah oh bless you yeah bless you um so either way uh you know so when I did my book I had to make two versions so once I got it finalized I actually made a copy of the file and I have the sample version and the full version. And then I went through and deleted a bunch of pages and added some content. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that I went through to make these two versions. Well, since iBooks author 2.0 came out, now they say you can create the sample with, from within the same file, which is great. Um, So then you've got these files and you upload it and then you need to take some screenshots to put in. Then you have your copy for the cell page. Um, It requires an ISBN number. And this is one thing I ha- cannot get the answer to as we're recording the show because the new version is so new. I have not submitted any new books. Uh, there is people writing on the internet saying that you do not need an ISBN number uh, to submit a book now to iBooks Author. And there are other people who are swearing that you do. And I don't want to, just for the sake of the podcast, submit a book. <laughs> you know, and you know, it's just not that easy. And I've already got the account set up. I don't want to screw anything up. But uh, it looks like you may not need it. But if you do... It's not a bad idea to have an ISBN number and uh, you have to buy it though. So uh, you go to what, can you explain a little bit about what an ISBN number is and what it does? Yeah. So you can get it. uh, There, there, there are recognized sellers of these numbers and in the United States, it's Bowker B O W K E R. And you get it at my identifiers.com. ISBN stands for uh, international standard book number. And it's the number that's on top of the little um, U- UPC the barcode. code. Yeah. yeah, exactly, that you see when you go in the bookstore. And it was very exciting for me when I did Mac at work and they gave me my ISBN number. It's like, oh, now I'm for real. Um, they're pretty expensive, though. If you want to buy an ISBN number, a single one, it's $150. Uh, if you, But they make it cheaper when you buy them in volume. So uh, when I got the ISBN for paperless i bought 10 of them and 10 of them is 250 dollars, and 100 of them is 575 dollars. so you can see it gets noticeably cheaper if you buy a thousand of them it's a thousand dollars so it's a dollar per isbn if you buy a thousand it's 125 dollars per isbn if you buy one so that's why this question of whether or not you need one is a pretty important one and i just don't have the answer yet we'll probably cover that in feedback once we have time to learn a little bit more but you get the ISBN or don't, and you get the book assets attached, and you fill out the forms in iTunes producer, and you push the button, you submit it to Apple, and then you're into the Apple approval process. And, and that's then where I got to. You wait. And well, then I get to learn what it's like to be uh, an app developer because you just don't know what's going on. They've got all these books. Um, you don't, you know, it's not real warm and fuzzy uh, in terms of you know somebody calls you right up and says, "Hey, we saw you submitted a book, and what can we do to help?" I mean, they got to go through their process and it does 
but eventually it gets approved or it doesn't. And they give you feedback and say, you need to change this or change that. But eventually you get a book through. Um, I'm not aware of problems with Apple um, rejecting books on editorial grounds. Maybe there are, I've, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, mainly what they're looking for is to make sure that the book works, you know, because it is kind of like a, a computer program in the sense that it's got all these moving parts and uh, you know, you know, they want to make sure that it, I guess it's probably not pornography and I'm sure they've got things they go through, but I never really had much trouble with it and the books got approved and I was able to sell it. Deciding what to price it at was a whole nother thing. I mean, I was clueless. I knew that I had put more work into paperless than I had into my prior books because all the extra media and stuff took a, just a ton of time. Um, I knew that a lot of people had never bought books in the iBook store and getting them to come there to buy the book was going to be, you know, getting them to change behavior, which is going to be hard for people. So I didn't want to price it so high. I wanted to price it low enough that people were motivated to actually try it. Um, I had advice from people saying, if you don't charge a hundred dollars for it, you're crazy to people saying you should charge a dollar for it. <laughs> I mean, and people who I really respected just gave me advice all, so, all over the spectrum. So really at the end of the day, I had no idea what to charge for it. Um, I ended up charging $5 for the book, um, which I had a lot of people tell me was too low. I had nobody tell me it was too high, which I guess means that I was probably too low, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, but I didn't care because I just want the book to get out there. I wanted people to see it and um, it did well. Uh, eventually after like four months, I announced I was going to raise the price to $10 and I wanted everybody to know that because I wanted the people who, you know, know and love me to be able to buy it before the price went up. And when the price finally did go up, it didn't really affect sales pretty much at all. I mean, it still sold pretty much the same quantities that it did. You know, obviously it wasn't selling the number after four months that it was, you know, in the first couple months, but it didn't seem like it really changed that. So I, I still don't really know what that means. Um, we did the book with Brett and we set it at $7 because once again, there was a lot of work making all that video. And as stupid as this sounds, I just felt like, you know, we should charge it enough that Brett and I make the same amount, at least as Apple does, because Apple gets its cut. I didn't want to put the brakes so low that after Apple got its cut, Brett and I actually made less. Um, if that makes that sense. Make, no, that, makes, it. that makes perfect sense. Actually, and, it really, it really doesn't because if we put it at $3 and they take, you know, whatever, but I, I wanted to make it a little higher. It feels better though. Yeah. And better. I think it's frankly worth it, you know, to be honest with you. Now and, Apple let you, lets you set your price anywhere. I, I understand. And, and I know you haven't published with them that Amazon has, has certain ranges though. I believe Apple does too. And I haven't looked like people were telling me a hundred dollars. I'm pretty sure $15 is the maximum price but I, uh, I'd have to go look. Uh, but you know, I, I want these books to be accessible to people. I don't want to overcharge for them. Um, because I've cut out the middleman, I can afford to charge a little bit less. Uh, but at the same time, it's a lot of work and you know, I want to charge them right. I don't know. As we sit here recording this, there are additional field guides coming out and I'm still scratching my head about what those prices will be. I suspect they'll never be over $10, but they may be, I, I don't know. We'll see, but I, I want to get it right. And I want people to feel like I'm not gouging them, but at the same time, I want to be paid for uh, a tremendous amount of work and effort. So we'll figure it out. Okay. Uh, one of the things, if you're selling a book, uh, Apple gives you 50 promo codes 
and that's all you get. If you sell an app, you get refreshes of those promo codes. So, you know, you give out the promo codes for a month, the next month you get more promo codes. With a book, you get 50 promo codes, that's it. So, um, as a result, and I guess that what their concern is they don't want people selling the book, like a low quantity book and just saying, okay, well just, you know, PayPal me 10 bucks and I'll send you a promo code and then just do that right. over and over again. Um, I, I would like, um, ideally for them to have something in like, once you sell a certain number of units, it's clear you're not doing that to give you some more because I get inquiries from people because I give away the promo codes really early to people who write about books and, you know, people who can help me, you know, promote the book. Um, so I run out very early and then I get, you know, I got an email from a guy from the wall street journal who was thinking about writing an article about self-publishing and he wanted to see the book. So I bought him a copy and sent it to him. You know, I, I didn't have a promo code to give him. So now that's a question. Can you gift books? I didn't think you could gift books on the iTunes store. The, um, in his case, I just sent him the money and he bought it. So, okay. But you know, I have to look, I, I don't know, Katie. I didn't think you could because I, yeah. I I went to try to gift someone the paperless book, and I didn't think you could do it. Now I think you can give them a gift card, or or you can like give them a gift certificate for a certain value, and then like suggest that they go buy something with it. Yeah, well, that's what I did, and I believe the guy. But anyway, the um, but the article never got written. Oh. <laughs> um, anyway, um, but hey, you know, it's the Wall Street Journal. They're busy guys. Um, so you want to get the word out. I always felt like, you know, I want to get the word out. I don't want to overdo it. I do get some emails from people saying that you're too much of a self promoter, blah, 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 blah. But these books are really great and I want to share them and I want people to learn from it. So I guess it's just your point of view. Uh, but you know, you do want to get the word out. So if you're going to do this stuff, give some thought to it because you're self publishing. You don't have a team of marketers out there helping you. Um, the takeaway from all this, I would say is, um, don't be George Lucas. You know, if you're going to write a book, get help and be self-critical, but also don't lose yourself in the process. Make something that you really love because it's a book and you're writing it. And once you've published a book, no one can ever take that away from you, that you're an author. Um, wow. another, another takeaway is I can't tell you how much I love the Max Barkey field guides. It's just, it's a passion for me. I've enjoyed this so much getting here and writing these books. And the thing I like about the field guides is they're they're much more focused than the big publisher books I was doing, because, you know, when you're making a book to put in Barnes and Noble, you can't write that many words about going paperless. You can't write 25,000 words and have an hour and a half video because it's such a focused thing that, you know, Barnes and Noble isn't going to buy that book and sell it. And nobody's ever going to see it. But if you're doing something like this, you can go completely nuts on a subject. Like my, my uh, paperless word count allotment in Mac at work was 3000 words. You know, the paperless book is multiples of that. So anyway, I, I've got so much great feedback from people. I'm glad that I can share some of the, the know-how back to the listeners. And I hope you guys make something awesome too. Uh, it's, it's an inspiring thing, David. It really is. And I'd, I'd like to do this myself one day, but it, it is just so hard. You're right. And I, I am, I, I'm just in awe of you because I know how busy you are and, and just, I, I just, I don't know how you do it. My big fear is that I'm going to start making crappy stuff. You know, I don't think it's, you have to worry it's about my that. biggest fear with the podcast, with the blog and with the books is 
I don't want to get so overcommitted that I start sending stuff that's terrible. And I, I, if there's one thing I get cold sweats about, it's that. So I really am careful about not overcommitting and, and just not shipping these things until they're really great. And, uh, I hope everybody keeps me honest on that because I, I don't want to let anybody down. I want to make stuff that you can have fun and learn with and, and just, it's just a great idea. And isn't it awesome that we can do this now? Just a few years ago, this wasn't possible. Well, I, I don't think there's any concern of that because I'm looking yeah. at the, uh, the technology books homepage right now and both paperless and 60 tips are very highly featured. Great. Great. Well, and that's another thing is, you know, I'm just very fortunate that I had an audience of people that were willing to give me a chance and listen to it. And everybody, you know, when those people think, well, why would I bother giving a little review to this book? Well, you know, they take a few minutes out of their time for me and it so much helps it get up there and get featured and help other people find the book. So it's, it's really great. But I really don't want to make this episode about me talking about my books. I just wanted to talk about how you make them. So I hope we got that across. And you know, we're already at a, over an hour and a half. <laughs> so uh, we can we can talk about a, a little bit of feedback. We got quite a bit of feedback about the sharing show. All right, let's do it. Okay. Why not? We're, we're also thinking about doing a full feedback and question and answer show, guys. Yeah, because so. this, this isn't all the feedback. I just parsed out some of the feedback about the sharing show. Cause we, we've still got a lot of feedback. So if you, yeah. you've got feedback that maybe isn't related to a show we've done lately or, or maybe requires you know more than just a few minutes that we devote to feedback at the end of every episode, um, send it to us. And maybe we'll save it and maybe we'll do a feedback show before the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's very likely. All right. So um, Neil wrote and kind of took us to task a little bit because we talked about we hardly ever hear about Max being shared in the workplace. And he says, I'm not sure about offices, but in schools, we are actively sharing computers. And I I guess I never thought about the school, but it it is it is an ideal environment for where you would need multi-user access. Yeah. How did we miss that? Yeah. Sorry, Neil. Um, We also had Howard write in to talk to us about an issue that's come up for me. And he talked about how he took his MacBook Pro into an Apple local authorized repair facility recently. And right before he walked out the door, the tech said, oh, and by the way, I'm going to need your administrator account password. And Howard said, I don't think so. And logged out of his admin account and gave him the password for a standard user account that he had set up on his machine. And, you know, Howard's not looking to blame anybody, but he said, coincidentally, shortly after he got his machine back, he received a couple of emails from his bank saying that he needed to reset his password because there have been numerous login failed attempts, thankfully, uh, as well as an email from Evernote saying that um, someone had requested a password reset change all while his computer was in for service, which is could be circumstantial, could be highly suspect. And, you know, I guess the, the question is, is, you know, if if someone is got access to your administrator account, you, you certainly give them a lot more free reign on your computer to do things. Now, hopefully you've got things locked down, you know, with solutions like 1Password and things. But, again, giving someone administrator access, you know, you're giving them access to everything in your keychain. That, that can get dicey. And I know I've had Apple. They routinely, if I've ever sent my computer in for, for Apple Care. They want to know what my administrative password is, and I usually accidentally don't tell them. Yeah, it's that's really a tough call. I mean, how far do you trust them? And I think I'm more trusting with Apple than I am with other people, which may someday you know come around to bite me. But 
it is, uh, it's difficult. You know, everybody always says physical access game over. Well, when you go get your computer repaired, you're giving them physical access. I mean, wasn't there, was it Best Buy or there was some big vendor who there was a big scandal recently about guys doing stuff on computers that got turned into them for repair. Oh, I mean, you hear about stuff like that all the time. Yeah. I don't know who it was specifically, but you do hear about stuff like that. Um, Richard wrote in and talked about on the sharing a Mac podcast where I was questioning the utility of Dropbox with two words, you know, the Apple version where you, you know, the one way, uh, folder for file documents. And he made a good point. Once again, it's school related. He says, you know, Dropbox is great for students turning in their homework so they can put their homework in. They can't see the other students homework. Only the teacher can. That was a very clever use of it. And Chris wrote in with a comment and a question, and his comment was that he uses the iPhoto, uh, he shares his iPhoto library, rather, uh, between multiple members of his family. And what he does is is one of the ways that we talked about is he places the library in a single directory called shared, and that that shared directory is in a public directory that everyone on the computer has access to. So that seems to work. You don't have to put it um, on an external disk image or on an external drive or a NAS drive or something like that. So that's good to know. But then he had a question for David, and he said, David, if, if you have one iTunes library for all your family members, how do you manage different ideas for different family members? Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, we have one ID for our family iTunes account, and that is what we buy stuff on. Uh, apps, music, video, everything. And, you know, this made perfect sense to me when I had uh, toddlers running around the house and now I have a 16 year old running around the house and I'm wondering what's going to happen at someday, you know, when she's going to leave uh, the music has fixed itself because they took the DRM out of the music. And so, and that's going to be the biggest deal for her at some point. Cause you know, we got to get the Mumford and sons into her account. <laughs> the, um, by the way, I went to a Mumford and sons concert. It was a lot of fun, but that's Good. another story. Um, the, uh, but, you know, for the apps we bought, that's a whole other story because they're all tied to this one single account. Now, we all do have our own iCloud accounts. So you've got your own iCloud email and your iCloud calendar and all that stuff. But Apple makes it possible on the iOS devices to use different accounts for the iTunes purchases versus your iCloud stuff. And that's done right in the settings on your, your iOS device. Um, but the apps and stuff, they're going to have to buy them again if they ever decide to to leave, you know, the family iTunes account, which I guess inevitably will happen. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like your, your family iTunes account will probably work well as long as, you know, you, the, the kids are still kids to some degree, you know, yeah. college or single or whatever. But when they start off and go starting their own little sparkies and their own little families, they're, they're yeah. then they're going to be now creating their own new master account and taking over your role. Yeah, exactly. I guess that's how things work. Yeah. Um, and then if you missed it, you know, we, we produced an After Dark episode a couple of episodes ago where, where we talked about the iPad Mini and we talked about the Microsoft service. And we, we mentioned that, but we had a couple of people say, uh, how do I get that After Dark? And there are a couple of ways you can get it. It's it's available um, through the 5x5 website. It's not available directly in iTunes unless you subscribe to the After Dark iTunes show. And that will give you every single episode of After Dark. So there are a couple of ways that you can get Mac Power users After Dark specifically. Um, Option one is if you go to either 5x5.tv slash MPU or MacPowerUsers.com and look on the sidebar, you will see a link to Mac Power Users plus After Dark, and it is an RSS feed. 
And uh, you can take that RSS feed and put it into your podcatcher of choice. Uh, if you use iTunes, if you go up into the advanced tab and go to subscribe to podcast, that's where you paste that in. And it will subscribe to that particular feed, and that will give you both of our original episodes and from time to time when we put out an After Dark episode, it will download that that single episode. Um, the other option is is you can individually download those episodes as they as they pop up um, from iTunes by by going to the After Dark page in iTunes and just picking and choosing which ones you want, um, or you can listen to them on you know the five by five site or I or um, or yeah I guess the five by five site um, or HuffDuffit is a service that I've used before to to pick and choose random podcasts when when I want to. And, and that's a service basically whether you, where you can, um, you know how kind of Insta, well, exactly. It's, it's like how Instapaper is for web pages where you grab web pages that you want to read later and it saves it to the Instapaper service. Yeah. Um, HuffDuffit does that with, with podcasts and you, you find a podcast that you, you want to listen to and maybe it's not one that you regularly subscribe to. You click the little HuffDuffit bar in your menu after you've set up an account and it will save that, and, and you'll be creating your own special podcast RSS feed, and it will will download those individual episodes. So that's kind of a cool thing, too. Yeah, and we got a lot of feedback from people saying, do more After Darks, and we will. It's just, I don't really do them the way most of the 5x5 five five people do. You know, we don't just kind of, like, rap after the show. Because, yeah, we're, we're busy. Well, also, I'm just not that interesting, to be honest. But the... Uh, but when we have something like it was fun to do the iPad mini show because we could talk about something that's kind of topical, which is kind of outside the usual scope of our show. We try to avoid news, but we'll we'll do more of them. I, I like doing them. I just we got to make a point of it more often, I guess. Yeah, it, it just seems awkward to kind of sit here and talk about the weather and things like that. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's it. Uh, I'm really thinking about doing a feedback and question and answer show because there's so much good feedback and we've been big pieces of it we haven't been able to address because the shows go long as it is so send us some notes and uh stay tuned all right and you can find links to everything that we talked about in this show as well as links as to where to find those after dark shows on our website at www.macpowerusers.com or at 5x5.tv slash mpu yeah you can also follow us on twitter uh that's uh, at macpowerusers and uh, i'm at at Max Barkey, Katie's at Katie Floyd. And if you want to send us feedback for that feedback show that we may or may not be doing at some point before the end of the year, send that to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. I can't guarantee you that you'll get an immediate answer, but we do read everything that you send us, and we'll be putting together that show. Yeah, and uh, thanks, everyone, for the iTunes comments and the support. Just like it helps the books, it really helps the podcast, too. That's right. Um, and I guess we'll see you all next time. 